0: Miracy.
1: I get excited about you know the, the transparency movement and things like certified benefit corporations because I think that we have to move to this place where people are more transparent. It is more clear. It is more shared because again, this is what people want. This is how they want to be treated. And if not, like people will leave and they'll go elsewhere.
0: I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by blending the art and science of leading with intention. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We will learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey, and you'll have takeaways that you can apply yourself. My guest today is Eric Edelson. Eric is the CEO of Fireclay Tile, a 36-year-old company that he joined in 2009 and that relaunched itself with an entirely new business model in 2014. So a middle-aged startup, one could say. Eric and I first met at Stanford Business School, where I was working as an executive coach and he was earning his MBA. I've been following his journey ever since. One of the reasons I invited Eric to join us is I knew that he had joined a company called Fireclay, and I had been reading about the progress the company had made as he took the company from really a complete turnaround situation through the process of becoming a B Corp, a benefit corporation, and his leadership had really grown. I also invited Eric because his company is smaller than some of the other companies we've talked about, and we wanna hear about all different stages of entrepreneurship. Some of the most important topics that we talked about include how important it is to build good relationships as a basis for earning trust. So, listen for the examples that Eric offers about how earning trust was so important to him becoming the leader he is today. Another thing to think about as you're listening is what are your values? And we'll talk more about Eric's values after. Welcome to the show, Eric.
1: Thank you so much for having me here, Sharon. It's wonderful to see you and such an honor.
0: It's great to see you too. So I heard you once say that working at Fireclay is intoxicating. (laughs) Can you tell our listeners a bit about the company, about Fireclay Tile, what the company does, uh, how it's changed since you joined, and what makes it so intoxicating?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We make the world's most beautiful tile. And we do it here in California and actually now also in Spokane, Washington.
0: Hey, congratulations on the acquisition. That was very exciting news just this week or last week, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we just closed on an, on an acquisition of a 57-year-old family business called Quarry Tile that has 82 incredible employees that we're bringing into the Fire Clay Tile family. So, it's, yeah, it's a great moment for, for our team and, uh, and another milestone in the the journey that i've been on for the last 14 years so to get back to your question you know what makes it intoxicating it's interesting the world of tile and and tile is you know just for context some people say that you know ceramics is the second oldest profession after prostitution (laughs) i mean this goes back centuries right earth fire all of a sudden you have pottery and ceramics and so there's something about earth there's something about heat color clay all of it comes together. And so almost every person that I meet has some relationship with ceramics. They've either done it, they either have an aunt or an uncle, or they themselves do something with pottery. And so there's very much something about the connection to earth um, that that exists in the industry and, and within the medium. So it's intoxicating in the sense that there's this, this incredible history and heritage to it. Uh, what we do is also pretty unique and special. I mean, there's, there is the version of tile that is mass production, huge factories. What we do is more on the artisan manufacturing side. So we are a made-to-order, almost semi-custom made-to-order factory. And what's unique about us is that we're fully vertically integrated. So we take dust and clay, turn it into the world's most beautiful tile, and deliver it directly to homeowners, architects, and designers. Whatever the customer is, whatever they're looking for, we will go and make that to order. And so the complexity in that, the variability with regard to size and color and order and pattern and volume, whether it's just something for a person's backsplash or tile for an entire hotel, that variability makes every day interesting. And so for me, that challenge has really been intoxicating in a sense of just, it's been fulfilling every day is a new journey and the opportunity that we see in front of us really only continues to get bigger and bigger.
0: So what was the company like when you joined? And uh, tell us just a little bit about that journey.
1: So as you mentioned, Fireclay is now a 36 or 37-year-old company. It was started in 1986 by a gentleman named Paul Burns. And Paul had been in the tile industry for quite a while. His uncle had a tile company in San Jose, California called Stone Lake Tile. And so at a young age, Paul started helping out in this tile factory, learning how to, you know, just stack tile and then all of a sudden fire kilns and sell it. Uh, and was really almost kind of running the place by his, by his like almost uh, late teens. So that company eventually got sold and kind of went away. So in his late 20s, Paul started Fireclay with a couple of, of friends in San Jose. So for most of the time, it was a small studio tile factory, had maybe 20 or 30 people in San Jose, and then another location called Aromas, California. And the company made products for local clients in San Jose, homeowners mostly they also supplied material to tile stores around the country. And then he dabbled in the commercial business, mostly actually with Whole Foods. Uh, Whole Foods, if you've ever been to Whole Foods, they tend to have actually beautiful tile. That earthiness is a really kind of core element to their stores and to their customer experience. And Fireclay was a big part of that. So the company was small. I'd say it was at its peak in 2007, a two and a half, $3 million business when kind of the housing market was booming. And then all of a sudden, of course, that changed. And so by 2008, which is when I met Paul, the company was really on a downward spiral. All of Paul's partners, he had bought them out. So it was really just him and a number of employees, uh, probably 30 people. And, you know, Paul's an incredible ceramicist and actually was quite astute business person. But frankly, there's so much going on that he couldn't really manage it. And he had some bad luck. He had a bookkeeper who turned out to have been embezzling a bunch of money behind his back that, you know, I, I kind of figured out. And so, I mean, without kind of going into the long story of how we met you know, ultimately, what I found was a company that was really, you know, almost on its last legs. You know, insolvency was right around the corner. Paul was really writing payroll checks out of his wife's bank account because there was no cash. Sales were drying up. There was no plan to turn it around. There was really, uh, Paul had a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of hesitancy to change. I mean, this had been his thing for 25 years, and it's what he knew. So he was really, in many ways, paralyzed. It was kind of a bleak situation. It was a very old company. There were no systems. There was no money. Um, but there was uh, a really incredible founder. There was a really great team. There was a beautiful product. Just getting that product to customers, having a brand, doing things that you know traditional Bay Area companies do. None of that was in place. Uh, and so in some ways, that was the opportunity that I saw. But that was the state of the business in 2009 when I got there.
0: So uh, that's... a. I can imagine for a kind of freshly minted MBA, that was sort of one of those like, ooh, there's a lot we can do here moments, even though that might've been kind of daunting. Is that fair?
1: Uh, Not really. Uh, In the sense of like, I really never saw this as like a long venture. I thought I would like kind of help him until I found a real job. I mean, he had no money. And what ended up happening was like a month in of helping him. And, And when I say helping him, you know, I lived in San Francisco, he lived in San Francisco, he would pick me up three times a week at like six in the morning, we would drive down to San Jose. And I just spend the day kind of like, asking his team questions and talking to customers. And as I mentioned, this bookkeeper uh, stopped showing up after I started asking her some questions, all of a sudden, I had to run payroll, no one to do accounting, I started doing accounting. And a month later, Paul and I just, you know, I turned to Paul and I said, Hey, I'll just do this. And let's figure out like some equity and you have no money. But you know, once I turn this around, you can pay me what you pay yourself, which was like $65,000 a year. I'd say for the first year and a half, he and I could barely pay ourselves. I mean, every other payroll, we might have enough money to pay us. And we shook hands on an equity deal where I would earn 25% of the company over two years. But we never actually like formalized that for four years. So it was like straight up just handshake agreement And so, you know, I mean, it really wasn't like this thing where I came in and thought, oh my God, there's so much opportunity here. It was a little bit like, hell, if I don't step in here, this thing is dead. And not that I had any allegiance to anyone there. I mean, I had zero responsibility to this place, but, you know, it was fun. He allowed me to do whatever I wanted. uh, And I'm a pretty, you know, kind of like action oriented person. And so he was really supportive and I could kind of mess around and take bets. I, you know, took on like four jobs right away. So, you know, it's basically free labor. And he and I had a really wonderful relationship. I got along well with the rest of the team. People were nice. Uh, one funny story is there was a gentleman named Martin, who was one of the founders who had, had since been bought out, but he still worked there and uh, you know, I kid you not, it's the little things in life sometimes. Uh, I would sit upstairs in this little office by myself, and he would come upstairs like every day at about eleven thirty and he would take this little like a paper towel and he would have a taco on it, and this would be a taco that was made in this like the back of the factory off like a little stove. And it was a tortilla with a piece of steak and a little bit of cheese and a little bit of hot sauce. And he would be like, Hey, Eric, you want a taco man? And I was like, hell yeah, Martine. And like, it was the best freaking taco ever. (laughs) And it was just those little things that, you know, kept me around. And anyway, I mean, the, the story goes on, but it wasn't like, Oh my God, this is the next huge thing. It was like, this thing is dead if I don't help. And so let me just kind of try to help it and see what we can do to just, turn it around and try to get it to, you know, flow positive again.
0: Wow. That's a great story. And I love the human beginning of it with the interpersonal relationship and also with the taco. That's just a great story. That's a lovely story. So if you, and I know that in 2014, there was a big change in the company. So I don't know if you want to say like a couple of things about that, just to give people context.
1: Yeah. There were some good companies who were frankly much better at selling in a wholesale way to retailers. They had much more shelf space, they had more of an offering, their price points were more aggressive, whatever it was. Uh, so we were just you know, kind of getting our butt kicked there and constantly at the same time trying to improve systems and roll out new technology. We went live on the Salesforce platform. And I mean, I kid you not, trying to get these dealers to stop faxing us orders and instead you know, click a button to confirm a sign to confirm their order. I mean, that was like, why, would you, why can't you just accept the fax? uh trying to get them to pay digitally rather than send a check in you know these were the battles i was dealing with so we were actually building all this like software to have you know a more relevant customer company but we were dealing with these very antiquated stores with an antiquated business model where the economics were upside down for us payment you know the payment cycle the cash flow cycle where they would send us an order we would go and make it we would ship it to them and hopefully 30 days later they would pay us but that never actually happened so that cash flow cycle was just horrendous on us you know, that all kind of like led me to a place of four years in, we had taken the company from, you know, twenty people and a million and a half dollars of revenue to maybe forty people doing two and a half million dollars of revenue. You know, here I am a Stanford MBA. My my friends by this point are all just doing amazing things, making a ton of money, traveling the world, doing all these crazy adventures. I actually just had my first kid and my wife's looking at me like you can't afford anything. Uh, I was really depressed. Like I was in a a total state of depression. Uh, my wife had given me five years to figure this out. I was four years in and I was like, I, I don't know, (laughs) you know? And so what ended up happening was if you see the movie, Jerry Maguire, I had a Jerry Maguire moment one morning where I woke up at like four in the morning. I had had, I was always talking to people. I was always trying to connect with people in the industry or even outside the industry have conversations. How did you get there? Right? Can we work together? Whatever it is. I mean, I was constantly just trying to you know, find people who were smarter, had built companies. And so that week I'd had a really interesting conversation with the founder of a company called The Shade Store. Anyway, I woke up at like 4.30 in the morning and I went to my computer and I wrote this you know, almost manifesto. I said, you know, we will never have a chance to have success in the model that we have. And also the tile buying experience is totally broken. You know, the manufacturer is so disconnected from the end customer that for those buying tile, especially at the higher end, it's a very customized experience. You go through this middleman, you know, company, there's an installer now, so many things can go wrong. And, and to not have that direct connection to the customer, we were failing customers. We were failing, you know, everywhere. And I just felt like for the people who were working at Fireclay, who were making the tile for me and my family, if we were ever going to have a fighting chance to have a you know, successful life and to have a great, you know, kind of income and and livelihood, we needed to change it. So the vision was to go direct, was to fire all of our customers, relaunch the company. And I sent an email to Paul with this manifesto. And I said, Paul, we're going to change the pilot industry. His reply was, sounds good. That week I met with one of my classmates from Stanford. And the other meeting, she said, you know, when can I invest? And I was like, you would invest. I mean, I I just didn't even realize that friends of mine had money. And I was like, you would invest? She's like, hell yeah, this sounds awesome. And I was like, oh my God. That's awesome. And within two months, we had raised $800,000 and we kind of finished our round that year with $2 million. And and, uh, yeah, the idea was like to go direct. And uh, initially it was like very much like e-commerce, tile e-commerce and build this e-commerce company. It's evolved over the years, but the idea was really go vertical. And so we relaunched the business in 2014 and we've grown tremendously ever since.
0: So that's a great story. And I love the network effect of people that you could reach out to, to talk to. And I'm just thinking about our listeners and I'm glad that you get to become part of their network too. Just thinking about it today. So when you think about what has been most important to helping Fire Clay grow so quickly, what are some of the things that come to mind?
1: Oh, just like brute force grit. My wife always tells me that I need to tell people that I'm an endurance athlete. I'm an ultra marathoner and I run This morning I had a three hour and 15 minute run and I just, that kind of ability to kind of handle pain and also know that it's a journey, right? Like the suffering and the work is so much more fun than the actual event itself. Uh, So I think it's that I've been really blessed to have, there's a core group of people at Fire Clay. some of the original folks who were here are still around. It's just, it's a really incredible culture, just incredible work ethic and drive to get through it. And that part of our culture really has resonated with me and has really fueled me. And so, you know, for me, I think, I mean, there's been a number of traits, but but I think a lot of it's been perseverance. Some of it's just been ignorance and naivety. I grew this company for most of its time with like a hundred thousand dollars in the bank when payroll would have been like a quarter million dollars every two weeks. And so that's like in some ways incredibly irresponsible. But you know, it was just kind of like Always having the mentality of like we're going to figure it out, like we're going to get to profitability, we're going to get to uh, improve gross margin. Like we are not just going to go and like raise more capital and just sell more of this business to outside investors. Like we're going to retain it, we're going to make sure the employees have it. We're gonna we're going to focus on like good unit economics. We're going to figure this out, and that was hard. It meant I didn't pay myself a lot for a long time, and. A lot of our team didn't have, you know, kind of market-based salaries and we had to make sacrifices everywhere. Like a lot of people we couldn't hire, just couldn't get them at the rates they needed. And so you had to just constantly be trying to put it together. It's really fun now. We're much bigger. And, and so we're able to, you know, kind of correct a lot of those things. But that challenger mentality and that kind of desire to win and fight and figure it out together, I think has been, has been incredibly meaningful for us.
0: So it's interesting because a lot of the words you were using just there sound very much like you said brute force but the last word you used was together and what I've read about the company and part of why I've tracked so closely is there does seem to be this incredibly special feeling about the company and feeling in the company do you want to maybe just tell listeners a little bit what is this culture called and what does it mean
1: We talk about our culture as a ganas culture ganas is a spanish word for desire will hope fortitude i mean it's it's really this idea of like we will figure it out i think part of that has been a little bit of my own personal journey i mean there's definitely there was a long cycle at fireclay where you know i was i was certainly kind of the leader who who made decisions and tried to be part of every conversation um i think that you know there were some hard times in there where you know i was accused of being a micromanager or being you know too in it And, you know, not for any other reason than I just care a lot. I mean, I now have two children and a lovely wife, but Barclay is really my third kid. And it's like, I care a lot about this place. I I really feel a kindred spirit to it and always wanted the best for it. And so, you know, that can sometimes be interpreted as being in too many things. And I think that like over the last couple of years, especially uh, as our leadership team has really emerged and our leadership team is really five of the six of us have grown up here. Like this is our really our kind of main first professional kind of experience you know, I've really seen the maturity and, and growth of those individuals and really leaned on them to run their teams and to, to take responsibility. And I think that we've now kind of really been able to have that idea and mentality throughout the organization and create a lot of autonomy and give people a lot of freedom to do their best work. So not rocket science, nothing, nothing too crazy, but, you know, that was definitely a journey for me. And I think also we've been very much focused on making sure that we not just kind of talk the talk, but walk the walk. A lot of that has come through being a certified benefit corporation. We've been focused on growing this in a really uh, what we'll call stakeholder way, where we're 30% employee owned, we're a certified B Corp. So how we measure ourselves across our, you know, environmental impact, community, corporate governance, employee benefits, et cetera, like that's been really core. And it's not just, you know, saying it, it's it's measuring ourselves, holding ourselves accountable and making sure that, you know, myself, the board, you know, everyone's very much aligned with where we're gonna spend money and how we're gonna do it. And so I think that part of our culture, you know, our team sees that and they see that, okay, we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes, but we are trying. We are holding ourselves accountable. We don't just say certain things like we do it. And I think that extra effort has, it's definitely been hard, but it goes a long way. And I think that part of our culture and taking it really seriously. And like I said, like moving to you know, a larger amount of employee ownership and the tough decisions that we've made to get there, you know, people see that and they see that we're vested in their growth and success.
0: I'd love to reflect with you a little bit more on your own leadership journey and this transformation or this transition that you've experienced from those early days. So i like to start with how would you describe your leadership today? But I wonder if maybe we could do a compare and contrast, like what was your leadership like then and how is it now?
1: Yeah, I'd say that the wonderful part of now is that I have an amazing leadership team around me and they also have great managers around them and i think if you were to go back you know eight years ago that was not the case paul and i were kind of partnered in this and paul had some incredible strengths but you know management and leadership were not necessarily paul's strengths and so we didn't necessarily have kind of like a leadership team necessarily we were kind of like leading the company i think that the team that has now that I now surround myself with has really matured in an incredible way, and so it's been a lot easier, you know, for me to really let go. I don't know if I would call myself a servant leader. I mean, I, I I would hope that I would be described as that, but I definitely, you know, try to I try to eat last. I don't have an office, like I don't have a fancy desk. Like, never had any of those kinds of things. I'm trying to like pick up. I'll work on the factory floor. i I still. I mean, I do some really weird things, like book people's hotels to make sure that they have like great travel experiences. I do a lot of like small gestures to really make sure people feel cared for. I respond to tons of emails and tons of communication to just acknowledge folks and say great job or say happy birthday. So I'm I'm like very involved and I think people see that and I think people really appreciate that. But I've also matured in terms of being much more strategic and getting out of the little details and letting people who are better at that do that. And then me focus on The higher level initiatives, making sure that we've got the right people, that we're capitalized in the right way, that we're making the big, bold strategic bets like the acquisition we just talked about. And so that's been a whole new journey for me, which has been incredible and so much fun to flex a new muscle and to learn a different experience. I think values have always been important. It was interesting. We have five core values at Fireclay. And when I was at Stanford, just because that came up earlier in this conversation, I did take a class with Joel Peterson on leadership and I actually pitched Joel to try to invest in this company many years ago. And right before that, I reread the paper I had written for him, I don't know, probably eight years before that. And it was shocking because in that, I wrote the core values that were going to guide me. And like it basically unintentionally mirrored the core values that we had at Fire And so these were really around kindness and honesty and effort, what we call Ganas. I think that the values that I've had that even go back to like my Jewish upbringing and going to a Quaker high school or even Stanford, where the motto is change lives, change organizations, change the world like that. Those things I take very seriously. And that really rings true in the values that we now have at Fireclay. So we've really tried to kind of lead with values and make decisions with values. And I think that's been very powerful for us.
0: So you raised something that I think a lot of listeners might like to hear a little more about that I'd like to explore more with you, which is, you know, companies need different kinds of leadership at different stages. And so when you got there, you know, even though some of the, you heard some concerns that you might've been micromanaging, seems like your sense was there was a little different kind of leadership needed early on. And can you remember what some of those early decisions were, those early pivotal moments, I guess, in your own journey?
1: I think that so much of my leadership was, you know, honestly sorted out by bad hires or people who weren't necessarily the right fit. I guess like I would summarize it mostly with like ultimately the outcome with Paul, which was, you know, Paul and I had started, this is the founder of Firefly. we started in a wonderful relationship. We really had a good segmentation of duties. We actually spent like an incredible amount of time together I and mean, we would commute from San Francisco to San Jose every day in his car back and forth. It was incredible, you know, and at the same time, as we grew up in an organization, we started to kind of outgrow Paul. And, You know, I started to, you know, outside of like, we love Paul and Paul did so much to grow this company. And without Paul, this would have never existed, no doubt about that. And at the same time, for where we want to go, other people are going to have an impact and we need that skill set. And knowing that Paul owned a tremendous amount of this company, I had to make like a pretty foundational decision of who I was going to partner with. Was it going to be continued to partner with Paul or? all of the other employees that I had. And and it ultimately came down where um, we we ended up buying Paul out and I was able to convince the board to redistribute most of his ownership to our employees. And so we were able to take our employee ownership from 14 to 30%. And so I think that like, you know, to kind of answer your question, I, I think that in my maturity as a leader, I've gotten better at really figuring out who I need around the table to help this company be the best that it can be. And in some ways, you know, being better about that, being more thoughtful, holding people more accountable to the tasks that they are required to do for the benefit of the business. That's been a huge maturation maturation point for me. I realized a couple of years ago, one of my biggest stumbling blocks was I was terrible at confrontation, just horrible. Like, I couldn't confront people. Like, and this goes back to like some family stuff and personal stuff, childhood stuff, of course, as everything does you know, I just, if there was conflict, I ran as far away from it. And so I just avoided conflict at all times. I was always just like, rah, rah, we'll figure it out. And that ultimately ended up in some really, the company being in a tough place. And so being able to confront these things, being able to realize that, you know, I need great people around the table. I need to hold them accountable. I need to have those tough conversations. You know, those have been some of the most seminal moments in my development as a leader of Firefly.
0: That's wonderful to hear. And also, I'm sure it must've been challenging I mean that's a lot of deep stuff to kind of come nose to nose with as you're also dealing with all of the business pressures so that's just really something.
1: Yeah, I mean there have been some dark days. Like really dark days. <laughs> and uh
0: Well, and I think <laughs> that that's kind of the essence of this sort of entrepreneurial leadership and you know I think for our listeners who share that kind of goal of entrepreneurial leadership there are some really dark times and some hard things and so maybe you could talk a little bit about I don't know if it would be the values that you were mentioning from your upbringing, but what, where did the strength or the insights, the fortitude for these insights, where do you think that came from?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's been so many times where I could have just given up and walked away. I think some of that comes back to like the intoxication of it. <laughs> like, you know, you see something that's beautiful and you see all the pain of it, but also you see the opportunity. And if you look at the problems as challenges and, you know, all the negative customer feedback or negative employee comments as learning moments and, you know, places where we can grow and develop where that's really kind of fueled me in a lot of ways and fueled this organization. I think that our industry and and again, even tile making ceramics for anyone who knows ceramics knows it's so brutal. There are so many steps. People totally underestimate the complexity of it. And it can just be unrelenting. And so, you know, if you don't have this like optimistic, positive attitude, it will just eat you alive. You know, where that comes from, again, I think that I've always just been a hard worker. I've always liked a challenge. I'm just intellectually curious. Like, we have something very special here, and that really keeps me here. But there have been some really tough times. Like, I mean, for my personal life with my wife and just navigating our personal relationship, our children, while trying to grow this, of course, money is always a factor, time. Is this ever going to work? Uh, Convincing employees of this, um, customers. I mean, it's been so many dark days, but without the tough parts, um, you know, the joy, the happiness, the satisfaction never exists.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think something you said earlier just has really captured my um, attention, which is, you know, early on, you didn't have the quality of leadership around you. So and maybe you didn't know that they were already capable. Maybe you did. But somewhere along your journey, it seems like you, you know, these these folks didn't just become a trustworthy leadership team without any guidance, I'm assuming, from you. And so what did you do to help build this capable, trustworthy leadership team?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I think that we've been able to give chances to people who probably, who, it was, who, where it was probably a little early for them. And so probably in a couple of situations, we put them in roles that, They weren't really qualified for, I think, you know, none more than we have a wonderful vice president of manufacturing. And he started with us in 2012 as a packer. This is someone making $10 an hour packing boxes. And I remember, you know, interviewing him to one of our, like our office manager was going on maternity leave. And so I needed someone for a short time to work in the office. And he was like, no, I I don't do that kind of work. And uh, that was my first impression of this guy. But, you know, over the next few years, he worked in a ton of different places. We had another plan manager that he really kind of learned under and stepped up and worked so hard. And so in 2018, when that plan manager left us, he said, I think Sal should be your plan manager. And I was like, Sal's like 30. Like how, there were like 100 people. And Sal like had really not managed many people before. He's like, no, I think Sal's going to be good. And I talked to Sal and Sal's like, I don't want it. I don't want it. (laughs) And I was like... I don't know. I think maybe this could be a thing. And, you know, he wasn't ready and he wasn't equipped and he didn't have the experience, but he had that heart and soul and desire and he had that curiosity. And, you know, we surrounded him with coaches and guidance and outside experts and gave him the support he needed. And he also took it and ran with it. And, you know, today is, you know, overseeing now two factories has 250 people under him and, you know, it's changed his life, his family's life and all the lives of his people. And he's just I can't speak highly enough about him. And I think, like, we could say the same thing about, you know, a number of the other folks as well. So I think some of it is, like, not so dissimilar from, like, the opportunity that Paul gave me, which was, like, I've never run a business. I had never been in tile and yet I had the desire. So I think we've really kind of tried to find these people who have the desire, the will for whatever that area is and give it to them. And yeah, I mean, we're now kind of bringing in some outside talent as well, which is also fantastic. And, we're able to, you know, find the right people and be able to attract them with the right, you know, pay and responsibility. But I think a lot of it has been, you know, kind of like trying to give those opportunities to people. And if they step up, like that's amazing. But also, you know, we've had people who we try to give opportunities to do and they don't step up. And you have to handle those things too. So we've gotten really much better at making those calls and making those decisions and being much more forthright about about the calls on people and, and on leadership than we probably were in the past.
0: So do you think it would be fair to say that as your trust in your own judgment about people and your trust in other people being, you know, give people a chance to see what they can or can't do, do you think that's part of what has contributed to this emerging leadership team? I think I read somewhere that three quarters of the managers in the organization are promoted from within, which is a really high percentage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. For sure probably that, probably trust myself, you know, a little bit more. I think sometimes we had people here, including Paul and others who had a little bit more experience than me had, you know, whether it was on the finance side or the production side, or even on the sales side, you know, and so I would defer a lot. And even though in my mind, I was like, I don't think that's right. (laughs) Something's off, you know, kind of having that confidence as a younger CEO in an organization where everyone else is older than you mostly, I think that was hard for me. So yeah, I mean, building that trust, having the knowledge of, and it's a complex organization, so I mean, early on, I mean, there were parts that I really understood. the manufacturing production side, I really had stayed away from that for a long time um, and trusted others to handle that. and it wasn't until that like fully broke and I really got my hands in there that I understood that and gained confidence on it. And so I think just really having confidence in every aspect of the business, understanding it, you know, again, it took like 12 years. I mean it takes a long time.
0: It takes a long time, and then also it kind of happens in a short time, sort of both things. Like there's a moment you know, where you're like, oh, it's working. What were some of the things you saw that told you, oh, it's working, this human-oriented, this person-oriented culture with all these folks that have never been trusted to lead and run their own parts of an organization? It must have been something.
1: Yeah, I think like one of my ahas like two years ago was, you know, I just, I was like, man, I'm really holding this company back. I'm holding it back because we're not being aggressive enough we're not strong enough with our balance sheet to be able to make some bigger bets. We're just, I'm kind of just too conservative. Like I am i need to like let let it out a little bit. And so that specialness that like we had really kind of balled up, it was amazing. And at the same time, I'm like, if I don't, you know, kind of like unleash this, like... What a missed opportunity. And so I think that that trust in what we've built, anecdotal comments, and the people who have a desire to come join our team and the clients that we have, you know, we were really just undercapitalized. We were under capacity for what the material desires that people had from us. So that's really been kind of a big change of mindset. It changed the game in terms of how we went to the capital markets to, to get capital, and acquisitions, development, expansions.
0: So I know our listeners are like, wait, but what did that candidate say they heard? So what did that candidate tell you? What were they getting so excited about?
1: We have it's just a really wonderful group of people here. They're, uh, if you go onto our Slack channels, I mean, people are just like happy. They're positive. They're sharing customer feedback. You know, they're, they're really um, feeling like they're bringing a tremendous amount of joy into people's lives and homes by kind of bringing them into this consideration and letting them Design their product and then us making it for them. And people like really get to know us. They get to know our people and whether they're then on social media and, and watching like every Friday, we do this Factory Friday and they get to know the makers and we share that story. And we're like very open and transparent and honest in a way that no other company in our industry is. That just creates a really wonderful feeling for customers. And, and so then our team feeds on that and our team is happy and they feel success. They feel like they're a part of it and they feel like they're a part of it because. They are. I mean, they own, they own part of it and their colleagues own part of it and they're paid well and they have incredible benefits. And like, they see that and they appreciate that and they're heard and they have a voice. And so when client candidates go through the process, they're just like, they get to me and I'm always like the last one. And they're like, wow, like everyone's so happy here. Like this has been amazing. <laughs> and like uh, so, so they talk about that. They talk about how wonderful the people are. And of course that's like a flywheel that just, you know, continues to, to fly and spin. And that's really, that's really exciting.
0: That's great. So as the company's growing, are there specific things that you're changing in your leadership style so that you can stay connected with folks?
1: You know, the leadership's been hard for me lately because I'm talking to you from my basement. And, you know, I do most of my calls from my basement. And so I'm on these Zoom calls with my team and we're across 15 states and we're now 340 people and two facilities. And it feels bizarre to like be leading this organization from my basement. And while I get to our factories and I am very vocal on Slack and send emails, you know, I also feel distant and, you know, I can't just like high five people. And so it also feels very lonely and strange. So, you know, in some ways I have to lean even more on managers in the organization to, to really connect with their team and to champion the team and be more Less individual projects, but more like thinking strategically and high level. So, where my leadership has really evolved is more on that strategic what's next for Fire Clay. Again, making sure we've got the right investor relationships, the right financial partners that we're thinking about acquisitions, new product lines that I'm really kind of trying to think about like, how can I support growth of teams and make sure they're not holding us back in the same way that I did? Like, what resources do you need? Are you thinking big enough? What would it look like to double that? Like, what more budget do you need? I'm trying to like really push growth um, and help our team who in many ways has been kind of held back largely by my doing uh, to like now think differently and to kind of think with a growth mindset, because it, not that we haven't been growing, but our growth has been constrained by capacity or cash. And so that's a whole new journey for me. And And it's a heck of a lot of fun. So I, like I said, it's I feel like I've got like a new job and that's been wonderful.
0: I guess I want to call that out for people listening that, you know, leadership does change. The needs do change over time. And each time there's this iteration, it invites you to find out more about yourself and more about who you are and what you care about and how you can contribute value. But also in this case, how do you continue to shape and lift up an organization so that others perpetuate that, I guess I'll call it kind of cultural magic of that human, like where people, what you described is, People are happy, people feel seen, they feel heard, they feel like they belong, they have a voice. You share a lot of financial information internally, people feel trusted. All of these things, I guess I would describe as very much human-centered or people-centered. Do you think of it that way?
1: It's like how I would wanna be treated, right? I mean, I think a lot about that. Like what would inspire me, right? What do I wanna know? What do I wish I understood? So I try to think about that. And I can't obviously talk to every single person and I can't have a one-on-one with 300 people and I can't, you know, really sit in a room in front of all of our team and connect with them. Like that's just not a reality, but we can still kind of create opportunities for them and make sure that they have the the resources and support and pay and benefits and ownership that I would love to have in an organization. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's so much about that. And in business, it's what I just want to call out is I think that there's a need today where people might say, oh, we're, you know, human centered company. I do come across so many owners who, who say these things, and in many ways I think their employees think it, but they don't act on it. They're not actually being transparent. They're not actually sharing in the upside. They're not actually providing the pay and the benefits. They're not actually contributing to the community in the way that they might be like, we donate to this company, but like they're not donating shit. They're not actively doing things to mitigate the harm they're causing to the environment or take measurements or or mitigate or offset, whatever it is. And so I think that again, like there is a lot of talk, but I get excited about, you know, the transparency movement and things like certified benefit corporations because I think that we have to move to this place where people are more transparent. It is more clear. It is more shared because again, this is what people want. This is how they want to be treated.
0: So, you know, the title of this podcast is To Lead as Human, and I know what it means to me. I'm just wondering, what, what does that mean to you, to lead as human?
1: Yeah, it's like treat others the way you want to be treated. I mean, it is be honest, be kind, <laughs> be considerate. My daughters have this, they go to this elementary school, and their school motto is be kinder than necessary. And so I think, you know, being human is like the most amazing gift that we all have. Like, we hit the jackpot so much to be where we are in this time. And to have the honor and the privilege to be able to lead others, whatever it is, is such an amazing gift. And so that gets me very excited and uh, I hope to be able to bring like that that element of humanity to our company. But yeah, to lead as human, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful title and um, I'm going to think about that. I don't know if I necessarily answered your question, but I am going to think about that and be challenged by it. What does it mean to you?
0: What does it mean to me? What it means to me is There's a tremendous amount of responsibility and authority that comes with assuming leadership. And to me, it means own it, recognize that that doesn't come unfettered. That comes with, and maybe it also comes from my Jewish upbringing. It comes with an accountability and responsibility to leave the world better off than you found it and do it in ways that you think fundamentally matter person to person. So, you know, to lead as human, be a human being, be fallible, be real be truthful. These are things that I care very much about. And live that and show it and lead the way for others to do the same, which to me is just like, I read someplace, um, and I know you have this, like, we are the makers who support the dreamers. Like, I'm the maker that's like, dream big leaders, dream bigger. Let's go do this thing. And let's let's really change the world in the ways that we'd like to see it changed for good. So I think that we probably share some similarities in that regard.
1: I love that. Yeah, I'm going so to that's how, your answer. You said it much better than I did.
0: <laughs> I doubt that, but that's okay. I want to ask you one more thing, maybe two things. So concretely, what hard metrics could you share with other leaders who are thinking, oh, this all sounds very idealistic. I'm a little skeptical, like, I don't know. So are there hard benefits you can say have emerged from taking this I would say sort of slow and steady approach to building a company for people by people. It's
1: gonna be very repetitive with anyone else who leads a certified benefit corporation, but really going and doing what is called the B Impact Assessment, uh, which is available through B Lab, which is the nonprofit certifying body of B Corps, is really like, yeah, just the the best place. The B Impact Assessment really goes through everything related to corporate governance, employee benefits community environment customers and and i think it it gets to a lot of a lot of the good stuff and it is a very honest account and you get a score and you can compare your score to the best in the world and to me what that did was really create a playbook of how to be better because the idea of like being better in business or leading a more human business i mean again like it sounds wonderful, but what is it, what does that even mean? Like how do I do that? Like how do I be better to my employees, right? Like you may sit there and say, oh, it's just pay them more, but that's one part of it. It could be profit share, it could be ownership, it could be retirement accounts, it could be life insurance, disability, short-term, long-term. I mean, there's, you know, the list goes on and on, employer reviews, um, gender pay studies. I mean, there's a lot of different things you could do, but like to so the average person, even me, like as a Stanford MBA, like I didn't know all that. And so, you know, this was a A really incredible tool, and it continues to be. And so, you know, I think that's an incredible place to go. And it will give you the metrics, the data, the insight to really get a more, a very comprehensive look at your business.
0: That's really great. And just for listeners, we'll attach some links so that you can look up some of the things that Eric's referring to. So I always like to wrap up with, you know, you've had this whole lovely leadership journey. It's been up, it's been down, it's been hard, it's been sometimes dark. There are moments of brightness. There are continued challenges. You're always learning. You're always growing. If others are listening and wanting to think about what steps can they take to start building a workplace that functions more like this, what would you suggest? What are the first few things you would suggest for someone to do if they want to be a more human leader and build a more fully human workplace?
1: I mean, first and foremost, it's like, you know, talk to your customers, right? Like talk to your employees. I mean, what's going on, what's working, what's not. I, I used to get up in front of our team every week in front of a whiteboard and I would say, what's not working? and they would Just like rail on me and rail on us as a company. And that was everything from, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't the whole company, but like it was a subset. And, you know, and then we would also share what was good. But your people will tell you everything you want to know if you ask them, and you know generally if you kind of respond to what they're seeking, you're going to do an incredible job. So I think it would be the same thing for customers. But you know, for us, we do engagement surveys. But you know, I've done the thing where I've sent an email to like every employee with a Calendly link and had people self schedule twenty minute calls with me. And I mean, it takes a long time, and I couldn't do that today. But you learn a lot, and to listen is amazing. But I think if you just start there, you will have like forty things to do that will allow you to change your business instantly.
0: That's terrific. So listen and take action on what you learn. Sounds good to me. Eric, can you let listeners know where they can find out more about you and the company and do you have a blog or something that you can refer people to if they want to read what you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly fireclaytile.com. And then I'm I'm active on LinkedIn. I go through spurts of like high activity on LinkedIn. I've written a few articles there and a bunch on B Corp and, and other giving initiatives and things like that but I'm not necessarily a prolific blogger or anything like that um, to the external world. Uh, But yeah, definitely. I think our website has a lot of information, kind of our transparency and we call them impact reports. Those are, those can be found on our website as well, but, uh, but otherwise LinkedIn.
0: Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your secrets, the ups and downs with us. And it's just a pleasure to see you doing so well and to hear the company thriving.
1: Well, it's wonderful to be connected to you again. And thank you for this opportunity to share.
0: Please keep listening as I share some next steps you might take on your own leadership journey. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com and you could book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So there were a few key ideas that I gleaned from my conversation with Eric, and let me just point those out to you. The first was how important it was that he built good relationships, not just with people in the company, but with the customers who were getting bad service as well. Their entire business model was broken, and it was all about broken relationships. He identified right off the bat good-hearted, hardworking people with a lot of perseverance. And that is what enabled Fireclay Tile to turn the business around so profoundly, leveraging that culture that was there before and building on it. A second thing that Eric highlighted for us is the risk that if you don't keep growing as a leader, your growth might cap the company's growth. He learned he better face up to his challenges quickly. Learning from the negative feedback from customers, the negative feedback from employees, these were learning moments that helped him stretch himself as a leader and stretch the organization. Even more important though, Eric recognized that he had a lack of confidence that was causing him to avoid confrontation, meaning there were conversations he wasn't having that he needed to have. He also recognized that he was holding the business back by not setting a high enough bar and not taking bigger risks. I know you want to make sure you don't end up capping the growth of your business. So recognize and look for any ways that you might be inadvertently thinking a little too small and see if you can think a little bit braver. The third thing is Eric talked about how very important it was to lead from his values. And even when cash was tight, that's particularly important because when a business doesn't have a lot of cash to improve people's pay or give them better benefits, we can do what Eric did. We can be kind, honest, passionate, and share that all with the people in our companies. And what he did is he rewarded people with his respect with his curiosity, and with his care. If you'd like to take a page from Eric's book and improve your leadership as he has, start by listing out your own core values. Don't take a list of values from someone else and think, oh, I care about this or I care about that. Watch yourself and listen to your words. Think about who in your organization you're promoting and who you're letting get away with bad behavior. Think about the values that drive your actual decisions and your actual day-to-day behaviors. And as you'd undertake that anthropological adventure, jot down the values that you think are most important to you that you would be willing to pay a significant price to avoid violating. And think about the values that are so important to you that you would be willing to pay a price to continue living up to them. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. Be sure you don't miss the upcoming episodes. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. Hey, the stars matter. So click those stars. It really does help out. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen.
1: I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making Making It. It. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you.
0: Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it
1: really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution.
0: Contribution, Like feeling like I'm
1: making a difference to someone.
0: And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day.
1: Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill.
0: If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really, like for real, for real, trust I would tell myself, no shortcuts, no shortcuts.
1: The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward.
0: Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it.
1: You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore.
0: Don't compare yourself to others but recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also.
1: I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking, and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am.
0: In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions, and I knew full potential. And then I ended
1: up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport
0: out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It
1: comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it.
0: Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available
1: on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.